All right, if you would please take your Bible and turn to Mark chapter number 1 this morning. Mark chapter number 1, and we will begin our reading today in verse number 1. Mark chapter 1 and verse 1. While you find your place there, I wonder, is there anybody here familiar with the name of C.T. Studd? No takers? Okay. First of all, it's an awesome name. Wouldn't it be great to have your last name be Studd? My last name's Carr. Studd, but C.T. Studd, it's okay if you've never heard of him. But C.T. Studd, Charles Thomas Studd, is actually one of the most famous cricket players um, in British history. Now, you're an American, and we play real baseball in America. We don't do cricket, so that's for, for wealthy English people. So don't feel bad if you've never heard of him. But um, C.T. Studd was born to wealthy British parents in the 19th century, and he was educated at places like Eton and Oxford, and he played on their cricket teams and is truly one of the most well-known and legendary. He's like the Babe Ruth of cricket. I don't know. Most legendary cricket players of all time. But while he was in college and while he was at the height of his cricket career, um, he became convinced of the urgency of following Jesus. And he became convinced not only of the urgency of following Jesus, but of the urgency of following Jesus to really, really hard places. And so he once famously said this quote, he made this quote, He said, some, there's this cricket uniform, some want to live within the sound of a church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? He said, I'm not interested in a comfortable life just sitting in church. He said, put me as close as you can get me to the danger. And he believed that. And he surrendered his life to the Lord Jesus and became a missionary to places like China and India and eventually died as a missionary in the Congo at 51 years old. But probably the most lasting contribution he made to the church was in this brief poem. And you've probably heard a snapshot of this before, but listen to what he said. He said, two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life, it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. I wonder if you feel that today, that you only have one life, and that this life, no matter how long it may be, really does go by too quickly. As the proprietors of the Bensco Bakery just read for us. Our life is a vapor. It is a warm breath on a cold morning. It's here and then it's gone and it vanishes before us. And we need to have the wisdom to understand the brevity of our our lives. And I think maybe because we do know that life is so fleeting, we spend our lives trying to chase any number of things to add life to our years, success and jobs and Memories and fun and all these certain certain different sorts of things, but none of those things last, do they? Only those things that have eternal significance have eternal significance. Only one life will soon be passed. 
Only what's done for Christ will last. I want to preach to you today about your one life. From this passage of Scripture, as we talk about a man who lived his one life, very, very short life, very, very brief life, but a life that mattered because it was a life surrendered to Christ. Let's read in Mark chapter 1 together this morning in verse 1. Mark 1, 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord abideth forever. If you've ever read your Bible, and I hope you have, and if you haven't, you should, but if you ever have read your Bible or been around the Bible when it's been taught or preached, then you know that the Bible is chock full of fascinating people, isn't it? And that's part of, I think, what contributes to the Bible's staying power is that it's full of these characters that are just larger than life. Think about the story of Abraham and Sarah. God comes to Abraham and Sarah, even though they're childless, at 75 years old. And says, you are going to be the father of a multitude, a great nation. If you could go out and you could count every grain of sand on the seashore, that's how many children are going to come from you. And finally, 20 plus years later, God keeps that promise when Abraham is 100 years old. That means that at 100 years old, Abraham is holding Sarah's hand in the delivery room. Saying, breathe honey, just like the coach told you. At 100 years old, they're waking up at 2 o'clock in the morning to feed little Isaac. Can you imagine that? Everybody in the house was in diapers at 100 years old. It's crazy. (laughs) And then there's the story of Moses. Moses, who was born to a poor family but adopted by the princess of Egypt and then becomes a murderer at age 40, spends 40 years on the run. And at 80 years old, God comes to Moses and says, after 80 years, he says, now, now your life can finally start. And I'm going to use you to bring deliverance to my people, Israel, who are enslaved in Egypt. At 80 years old, so now it's time to get started. At 80 years old, I'm going to be eating applesauce and falling asleep during matlock reruns. Like, and then there's David, Right? Takes down, a Goliath, takes down a giant named Goliath with a slingshot. There's the Virgin Mary. Have you ever thought about this? And think about it really as we get into Christmas time, that the Virgin Mary was a teenage girl. A teenage girl. You ever been around any teenage girls? And God says, this is going to be the instrument I use to bring my son into the world. 
And at 15 years old, maybe 16 at the oldest, before we would have even let her drive a car, God says, I'm going to put my son inside of her. What were you doing at 15 years old? I was eating Doritos and playing Halo. That's what I was doing. It's amazing people, but nobody in the Bible, even according to Jesus, nobody in the Bible had a life quite like John the Baptist. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11 and verse number 1, or verse number 11, truly I say to you, among those born of women, in other words, if you came into the world in the usual way, like we all did, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Nobody ever lived a life like John lived. He was a unique man. He was maybe an eccentric man. He was a man who left a, a, a huge impact and made a big imprint. He was a man that God used in a unique way at a unique time to do unique things. He was a man who had one life, but he made his one life count. I didn't know we had a cuckoo clock here. He was a man who used what little time God gave him to make an eternal impact. What I want to do today is just highlight a few ideas from Mark chapter 1 and a few other snapshots of John's life to impress upon you what C.T. Studd wrote all of those years ago. You only have one life. And that life will soon be passed. And even though we may pursue any number of things with our days, we may chase after the wind, as the writer of Ecclesiastes says, we may give ourselves to countless different pursuits. Only the things that are done for Christ will really outlive us. So how did John do that? How did, how did John live his life for Christ in a way that mattered? So that Jesus would say about him in Matthew 11, 1, there's never been anybody quite like John. Well, let me tell you two thoughts today. The first one is this, John stood out. John stands out. He knows what it means to stand out for Jesus and to stand up for Jesus. Now, if you do know the story of John the Baptist's life, you know that John had a unique life, right? Remember, John was born, himself was born to a set of older parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, who had lived for decades as a married couple and yet had struggled with infertility because Elizabeth was not capable of having children. And even though they prayed and prayed and asked God to bless them with the baby, it just never came. Until one day, Zechariah the priest was in the temple. This is Luke chapter number one, and the angel Gabriel appears. And Gabriel says, Zechariah, your prayers have been heard, and God is going to give you a child. And here again, there's a lot of this in the Bible. You've got another couple that are incapable of having a child, having this miraculous little baby by the name of John. John was unique in his birth. John was unique in his ministry because John lived his whole life as a Nazarite. That means that his parents took for him and he took for himself a special vow to God where he never was around a dead body, which is not that bad of a deal. Never drank any wine, which, you know, we can manage that. Never got a haircut, never trimmed his beard. So by the time John becomes a grown-up at 30 years old, he's never had a haircut, which means his hair would have literally been dragging the ground behind him. His beard would have been dragging the ground in front of him. And so what a lot of times the Nazarites would do is they would take their beard and they would braid it in seven braids. Is that not awesome? And then they would tuck those long braids inside of like a fanny pack on their front so that they wouldn't trip over their beard. And when take, they would take their long hair so that it wouldn't get caught on rocks as they walked behind them. They would stick it in a fanny pack on their back. It would just been hair everywhere. And this hairball comes preaching repentance out of the wilderness. And everybody in Judea comes to hear him. John was unique in his ministry in that way. He's baptizing people at a time when baptism was not commanded or expected. 
John is unique in his diet. The Bible says that he lived and subsisted off of locusts and wild honey. Now, I can sit with the wild honey. Honey, butter, and biscuits, that's okay. But locusts? I don't know. I don't know how you prepare them. Maybe he's on to something. But evidently, locusts are kosher so that the Jews could eat them, and John did. But the truly unique thing about John is what's predicted here in verse number 2 and 3. And these are quotations that Mark gives us from the Old Testament books of Malachi and the books of Isaiah that predict the coming of the Lord. But before the Lord comes, there will be a forerunner who comes to prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will come as one to prepare the way of the Lord, the voice of one crying in the wilderness who will say, make the path straight for the Lord. Now, this is an ancient image in play here in Mark chapter number one. Because in the ancient world, travel was very, very difficult. Most people never really went a few more, mi- more than a few miles from their home. And we take it for granted in our world how easy it is to get around and how easy it is to travel. I know it doesn't feel that way when they make you take your shoes and your belt off at the airport. You've got to stand there and they scan all your parts. I know that. But for the ancient people... It was about impossible to get anywhere. And so if a king wanted to visit maybe a remote part of his kingdom, that he would send out engineers and road crews to go and cut down trees, to build roads, to to quite literally level valleys and take down hills and make sure that it was easy for the king to get to where he wanted to access. Because the roads in the ancient world were terrible, like they are in Alabama. And so they would send out the Department of Transportation, and they would prepare for the coming of the king. And that was John's ministry. John's ministry was to come and to preach repentance to the people and say, you need to prepare yourself for the coming of the Lord. He was one who stood up boldly and said, you need to repent of your sins and you need to be ready to accept the Lord as he comes. And the Bible says that John, I love this phrase about John. That's what I really want to key in on this morning. That John was the voice of one crying in the wilderness. John had embraced one of the greatest pieces of advice that I've ever been given. John was committed to being a voice and not an echo. John was not afraid to stand out and to stand up for Jesus. When the truth about a lot of us is that we are afraid to stand up and stand out for Jesus, aren't we? It's a whole lot easier for us just to go with the current It's a whole lot easier for us just to conform to the world around us. It's a whole lot easier for us just to blend in than it is to stand out. But John said, I'm not afraid to stand out for Jesus. I'm not afraid to be who God has made me to be. I'm not afraid to be unique, and I'm not afraid to be a voice. Can I tell you today that our world needs some people who are going to say, I want to be a voice for truth in a culture that's given over to lies. Our world needs some people who are going to say, I want to be a voice for Jesus, even if it is not easy, even if it is not popular, I will be a voice crying out in the wilderness. Our church needs to be made up of people like John who say, God has not put us here to be echoes of the world around us, but God has put us here to proclaim a unique message and to be a unique voice to stand up and to stand out so that we can be light in the darkness. So, Brother Jesse, if I do that, people may not like me. People may think I'm weird. 
Look, they think you're weird anyway, all right? We all think everybody's weird, don't we? It's too late for that. That ship sailed. Don't even worry about that. What do you see, I think, in this passage of Scripture is that John's uniqueness and his willingness to stand out did not necessarily make him popular, but it did make people come to hear what he had to say. There was an acknowledgement that John is saying something different. John is saying something unique. John is saying something fresh. Verse number 5. All the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized to him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now there were, the time of John and the time of Jesus, there were a lot of religious movements in Israel during this season. The Pharisees were wildly popular very conservative, very strict, very traditional. The other end of the spectrum were the Sadducees, and the Sadducees really didn't believe in much of anything except power and money. They were deeply connected to the Roman government. Then you had the movement called the Zealots. These were people, we would think of them as terrorists, really, that wanted to violently overthrow the Roman reign in Palestine. Then there were the Essenes. They were kind of the hippies of the first century Jewish world, just lived out in the desert and had out-of-body experiences and all this kind of stuff. But here's John, who doesn't fit into any of those movements, who can't be claimed by any of those movements or controlled by any of those movements, who says, I'm here to say what God has given me to say. And as that voice in the wilderness was lifted up, people started to say, there is a man who has something to say. And there's a man that we need to go here. And this was a problem John had his whole life. He had this problem of just preaching the truth and people wanted to hear it. It's fascinating how this happens for John. Look over with me in Mark chapter 6. And this will be after John is executed and he's beheaded by King Herod. But we get a flashback about John's life. His uncompromising boldness, his convictions and his ideals, but also this refreshing capacity to tell the truth. Verse number 14, King Herod heard of it. That is, he's hearing, hearing of the ministry of Jesus. Mark 6, 14. For Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. So do you see what's happening? Jesus is working, miracles are being done, and people are saying, the only explanation is that John the Baptist has come back from the dead, and somehow he's working in Jesus. Or it's the same person or whatever. They said that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, well, he is Elijah an Old Testament figure. And others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I have beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sinned and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. So you see the problem, right? King Herod has married his sister-in-law. That's the problem. Amen. Different sermon, but it's still a problem. John, what's he been saying? Oh, it's fine. Don't worry about it. The heart wants what it wants. No, what does John say? Dude, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. John's been saying this is wrong. And Herodias, that is um, Herod's wife, had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod, notice this, Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and a holy man, and he kept him safe. Now look at this last sentence. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. 
Why do you think it is that Herod, who is very much the object of John's preaching, who is very much in the wrong, why do you think it is that Herod wanted to hear John gladly? I don't know for sure, but I think that John was probably the only person in Herod's life who would tell him the truth. Herod was probably surrounded by these political yes-men and sycophants who just said, you know, whatever you want to do is right. Herod, we're for you. We support you. Everybody his whole life had been giving him what he wanted. But here was one voice in his life saying, this is wrong. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. I believe today that there are some of you in this place that know the Lord and love the Lord and want to serve the Lord And you are the only voice in somebody's life who would tell them the truth. You are the only voice that would tell them the truth about Jesus and His love for them. You are the only voice in their life that would tell them the truth about God's plan for them. You are the only voice that would tell them the truth about judgment that may be coming in their life. You are the only voice. Because their friends are just going to continually affirm them. Their culture is just going to tell them to pursue what they want. The television's not going to point them to Jesus. Their favorite podcasts aren't going to point them to Jesus. The pictures they see when they doom scroll social media, they're not going to point them to Jesus. You may be the only voice, the only voice in their life, in the wilderness and the emptiness of their life, the only voice that will stand up and speak out for Jesus. Don't be afraid to do it. I just believe this morning that What a lot of us focus on that renders us so helpless in our service for the Lord is we focus on how different we are or how limited we are or how unique we are and we think, well, God could never use somebody like me. Do you hear what I said today? John never had a haircut and he ate bugs. He had a hard time in high school. And yet God used him greatly. Do you believe and understand today that you have been uniquely made by the God who made everything to do what only you can do, to accomplish what only you can accomplish? And there are things that God wants to do in the story of His redemption that He can only do through you and the way He's made you and the way He's wired you and the family He's put you in and the circumstances that you have been born into and the suffering that you have lived through and the personality that He's given you. All of those things that make you uniquely you. God has done that to make you a unique voice that can proclaim a message that I can't proclaim, that nobody else around you can proclaim, but that you can proclaim. In a wilderness of lies, you can be a voice for truth. So I want you to understand today that God has made you unique. And God wants to use you in a unique way. Over the past few months, I have been meditating a lot on um, my weaknesses, I guess is what you would say. And I don't mean physical weaknesses, um, but things about me that I wish I could change. That's part of the frustrating one of the frustrating parts of maturing, right, is you find all these things about yourself you wish you could change, but you know it's too late. They're not going to change. What I'm beginning to understand is that by the grace of God, some of those things that I consider weaknesses in the hand of God can be quite useful. If I realize that everything I am and everything I have is a gift from God and that I cannot take credit for anything and I have to put it in His hands and say, Lord, I'm yours. God is calling somebody here today to do that exact thing. To say, Lord, I want to be that voice 
I want to stand up for Jesus. Second, John, who knew how to stand out for Jesus, he also knew how to blend in. Now, I know this is paradoxical, and I know it seems contradictory, but I think it actually flows really, really well together. John, who knew how to stand out for Jesus, also knew how to blend in for Jesus. Because when he has this huge crowd together, he's baptizing these multitudes, everybody from Jerusalem, Judea, has come to this new outdoor megachurch in the wilderness. What is John's message? John's message is, y'all, I'm telling you, there's somebody coming after me, and I'm not worthy to tie his shoes in the morning. So when God gives John a platform, what does he do? He uses it to promote Jesus. When God puts the spotlight on John, what does he do? He shifts the focus to Jesus. When John has the opportunity to speak up, what is the content of his sermon? It's Jesus. John knew how to stand up while also blending in. And I think today that this may be where a lot of us are struggling in life right now. In fact, this may be the continual struggle of the Christian life or of all life to learn that we're really not the main character. That's a hard pill to swallow, isn't it? That this really is not about us. Now, we think it is. We live that way and we, we feel that way. We even process life that way as if this is all about us. Like all of y'all are just characters in my story. And y'all are here to either help me accomplish what I want to accomplish and experience what I want to experience, to achieve what I want to achieve. You are a supporting character, my sidekicks to help me do that, or you're a villain who gets in my way. And so you're either a friend or foe. And circumstances, they're all about me. They're all about shaping me to become who I was destined to become. Right? John says, this ain't about me. I may be a supporting actor, but I'm not the star of this show. Jesus is the one who deserves to be center stage. And I want to make sure that anybody, John would say, I want to make sure that anybody who hears my voice, hears my voice proclaiming Jesus. I thought while we were singing a few moments ago that Jesus deserves to be the hero of all of our stories. Man, I'm not the hero of anything. All I've ever done with my life is make a mess of it. That's all I've ever done. But as we sang in a moment ago, in spite of the messes that we have made, the goodness of God has continually ran after us. The goodness of God has continually pursued us. And even when we were not the people God wanted us to be, God refused to give up on us. God continued to pursue us. God continued to chase us down. And he's still doing it now, isn't he? He's still pursuing us even now. And if he's done all of that, then listen, folks, I'm not the hero of anything. But Jesus should be the hero of everything. And I want him to be the hero of my story. I want this to be about what he can do through me, not about what I can do for myself. John grasped that. And because of that, he's really able to blend in. And he illustrates this really well in another place in John's gospel. Look with me there. We may have it on the screen. John chapter 3. Oh, yeah, there we go. John chapter number 3. I think this really perfectly describes John's heart and his convictions. John chapter 3. This is kind of when the sun is setting on John's ministry. John's ministry was like our lives. It was a vapor. It was here and it was gone. 
And this is at the end of it. This is when people start to notice. John's congregation isn't as big as it used to be. This is when people start to notice that John doesn't have the momentum that he used to have. The crowds are, they're down 10-15%. Look at what happens in verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. So they're having a a quibble over some sort of uh, Jewish tradition or theological idea. And they come to John and they say to him, Rabbi, he who is with you, this is Jesus, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. You hear that, right? John, your, your influence is waning and Jesus is taking your, stealing your thunder. He's preaching to your church, man. He's taking your crowd. You feel that, right? John, the spotlight's moving off of you. John, you're not really cool anymore. John, Jesus is just more interesting. How does John answer? Verse 27. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. John says, all my life is a gift. It's all been a gift from God. I didn't deserve any of this. I didn't earn any of this. God gave it to me. But then he goes on. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John says, I've been telling you all from the beginning this wasn't about me. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John uses an image from a wedding. And, of course, wedding customs in the ancient Jewish world are different than they are in our world. But there are certain similarities. And one of the similarities is this idea of the friend of the bridegroom. And that would basically be like a best man. With, with a couple of differences. One of the main differences is that as the wedding got closer in the ancient world, it would be the best man or the friend of the bridegroom. It would be his responsibility to go and make sure that the bride was safe and that she was going to be delivered to the wedding. That was his responsibility. Now, you don't put that kind of responsibility on the best man today. You don't give them any kind of responsibility. Don't even let them hold the rings because they'll manage to screw that up. But here, the friend of the bridegroom, John says, I'm the friend of the bridegroom. Jesus is the groom. And his people are the bride. John says, it was my responsibility to hand his people over to him and to step back. It was never, never my place to stand center stage. It was never my place to seduce the bride for her attention. This is always, John says, this was my joy that's now complete. It was always about getting Jesus and people together. That is what it's all about. Now, imagine this, if you will. In a, just, just think of it in, in a wedding that we would be familiar with. We've all been to weddings. We've all had our own weddings for the most part. And, you know, people used to get married in churches. Remember that? Now everybody gets married in barns. But um, when people got married in churches, you know, you'd have the preacher up here in the middle. And you would have the bride. Let's see, she would be right here. No, she would be over here. Yeah, that's right. I don't know. That's why nobody gets married in churches. You can't remember. She would be somewhere over here. And the groom's going to be up here, 
And they're going to be holding hands, and you know they're going to be talking and giggling, and they're going to be crying, and she's going to be trying not to mess up her makeup. And then you've got all 25 of her best friends and cousins in the, the bridal party, and then he don't have that many friends. He's never had a conversation with that many people, so he's got his dad and a couple of cousins and the guy that works at O'Reilly Auto Parts, and just, you know, filling up the space so the pictures look right. But standing right here beside the groom is who? The best man. The only time he's ever going to wear a suit before he's in a casket. He's standing there. And he does nothing the whole service for the most part, except try not to pass out, which is fine. Because none of this is about him, is it? It's not his day. It's their day. But imagine what it would be like if you're at that wedding. And you've got the bride, the groom, the preacher, all that. Flowers, candles, everything in place. And the best man... He's trying to flirt with the bride in the ceremony. Right? That'd be outrageous, right? It would be scandalous. It would be, it would be horrifying. It would be painful to watch. And you would think, what kind of twisted, messed up situation is this? That's what John is saying. He said, this is not about me. Stepping into his place. This is about me decreasing so that he can increase. This is about me blending in so he can stand out. This is about me getting small so that he can get large. You want to make your life count? You really want to make it count? Then learn how to get small so Jesus can get big. Learn how to get really, really little so that Jesus can get bigger and bigger and bigger. Make sure your desires are small and his are big. His will is big and yours are small. Your passions are small and his are big. Decrease. John said, that's what I'm here to do. I'm here to shrink. I'm here to shrink. That's why Jesus would say he is the greatest that's ever been born of women. And John had no idea how great he was. And maybe that was the secret to his own greatness. That he was convinced of the greatness of Jesus. Now, we all want to be great. I get that. We really want our life to matter. We want to think that after our life is over, that we will have made a difference. We will have made an impact. We will be remembered. We will have mattered. It will have made a difference in the universe and in history that we were here. You know, the old saying is that, that when you're dead, you've got the year you were born on your tombstone and the year you die, and the only thing that matters is what you do with the dash in the middle. Well, we like to think that our dash is going to make a difference. We want to be great. Y'all, it's not about our being great. It's about our Savior being great. That's what makes life count. I want to finish today with a sermon illustration that um, my dad used to give. Guys, y'all go ahead and, and come get ready to sing our invitation. And he would give this sermon illustration. And when I was a kid, this would terrify me. Still kind of terrifies me, so I hope it shakes you up a little bit too this morning. But he said, the illustration is a thought experiment, and he said, imagine that your lifespan is like one 24-hour day. Now, the average life expectancy for human beings today is about 80 years old. Now, some people don't get 80 years. We've got some people in our service this morning, Brother George, you, you just blew the doors off of 80 a long while ago and you just kept trucking. God bless you. 
Men don't live as long as women. Women usually live longer than men because men like to blow things up and walk through the woods with guns and, you know, that brings the average down. But on average, 80 years. So let's say that we get that 80 years. And if you took that 80 years and thought of it like one 24-hour day, one 24-hour day, if you're here today, and you're about 10 years old. You're about 10 years old. It's 3 o'clock in the morning. You had not even really started yet, right? Plenty of time left. Plenty of time left. But the clock's ticking. Now, if you're 20 years old, it's well, still early. It's only 6 o'clock in the morning. Plenty of time. But the sun's up, and the day's ready to start. Now, if you're like me, and you're right around 40, it's lunchtime. It's noon. The day's about half over. And realistically, if I do get 80 years, for me, it's about 11.45. I've only got just a little bit more in front of me than I've got behind me. So if you're here today and you're hovering around 40 or you're on the other side of 40, it may be 12.30, it may be 1 o'clock for you. If you're here today and you're 60, well, it's getting late, isn't it? It's getting late. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's stand together today. And the invitation is simply this. I'm going to ask you to come today and say, Lord, make my life matter for you. Let me be the voice of one crying out in this wilderness who's always decreasing so that Jesus would increase. While we sing this song together, surrender it all to him. Say, Lord, it's all yours. I freely give it to you. Use me however you see fit.